We're continuing our Pillars of the Reformation series this morning. We're in different sermons of this series. We're focusing on key parts of our faith, parts that have sometimes been neglected. This morning, we're focusing on Christ alone. And to help us do that, we're going to be reading from the book of Hebrews. We'll read Hebrews chapter 7 from verse 18 to verse 28. Let's read. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints its high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word for us this morning. Hotel Rwanda is a story about the Rwandan genocide in the early 1990s. In Rwanda in that time, the majority Hutu almost wiped out the Tutsi minority tribe. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. But Paul, and I'm not even going to attempt his last name, Paul was the manager of a luxury hotel in Rwanda. He was a Rwandan himself. And through that whole time, he was able to keep over a thousand people safe in his hotel. But there's one scene in the movie where Paul is sitting with Colonel Oliver, who's the head of a UN peacekeepers group. And peacekeepers are soldiers from different companies who are loan countries who are loaned to the United Nations to go and to keep peace in certain places. They go and they manage things, they keep the lid on things. But Colonel Oliver, well, he's having trouble. So he's sitting in the hotel in the bar actually, and he's trying to drown his sorrows. And as he's talking to Paul, he says, Paul. There's, there's nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do. Our, our rules of engagement, the things we have to follow, say we can't attack unless we're attacked. And there's way too many people out there killing each other. And there's, there's nothing we can do. Paul, we're peacekeepers. We're peacekeepers. And the peace is gone. We're peacekeepers, not peacemakers. And there is nothing we can do for you. Nothing we can do. And that's, that's the story of all of our human, moral, religious, and spiritual effort. We can sometimes manage to keep a lid on things. We can make laws and regulations and have institutions that try to keep a lid on our evil and that can kind of minimize the effects of it. Laws, regulation, discipline, They can kind of keep people in line, but there's always exceptions, there's always loopholes, there's always people who find their way around, and evil by itself 
always explodes. All the managing we do, all the attempts we make to keep the peace, ultimately, they fail. We can't fix the world. We can't fix ourselves even. And everything we do to try ends up being weak and useless. Hebrews 7.18 says that the former regulation was set aside because it was weak and useless. And here in Hebrews, that former regulation is God's law in the Old Testament. And Hebrews isn't saying that God's law was bad or wrong. It actually was a really good thing. But what Hebrews is saying is that even the law that God gave his people, even God's great law could not fix our brokenness. Even the law couldn't save us. Even the law that God himself gave us could not make peace. Our first point for this morning is that Christ alone gives us peace. Christ alone gives us peace. Hebrews tells us that everything else was weak and useless, so a better hope is introduced. Jesus came to save us. Jesus came to truly give us peace. And Jesus is the only real peacemaker. Only he can carry the work of salvation all the way through from the beginning to the end. And that's why in verses 20 to 22, Hebrew talks about how Jesus became a forever priest with an oath. And the first couple times I read through that passage, I thought, why in the world should we care that Jesus became our high priest with an oath? What difference does that make? But an oath is a promise, right? An oath is a promise. And what Hebrews is telling us is that Jesus gives us peace based on God's promise. God himself, through the work of Christ, has promised to give us peace. And that, that oath, that promise, is a guarantee like no other guarantee you will ever receive. Nothing else can really bring us peace except Christ alone. And so Hebrews tells us to turn away from all those other things, to turn away from the other things that we put our hope in and to put our hope only in Christ because Christ alone can give us peace. And then Hebrews 7 goes on and it gives a couple different ways in particular that Christ is our great and our only Savior. So our second point for this morning is that Christ alone, Christ alone never fails. Verse 23 tells us that there have been many, high, many of those priests, many, many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. And when the text says those priests, it's referring to the, to the Levitical priests, the priests in Aaron's line. And it's saying all the way from Aaron on, those priests were never, never good enough. They could never continue their work. They always failed. And it wasn't exactly always their fault, but all of, them, all of them passed away. And another priest had to come along and take their place. Josephus, an ancient historian, tells us that between Aaron and the time that the book of Hebrews was written, there were 83 high priests. Now, I can't vouch for his exact number, but I think he makes the point pretty well that year after year, generation after generation, century after century, 
the high priest came and the high priest went. And some of them were better, some were worse, but even the best of them, even the very, very best of those priests could not carry their work on forever. God's people could not put their forever hope in those leaders. And we still can't. There has always been this temptation among God's people, this desire to put our forever hope in someone we can see. We've always had kind of this this need that we want someone who we can see, who we can grab hold of, who can really, really assure us that we're going to be okay. It's, It's a temptation that we keep experiencing. We want to have someone, someone we can put on a pedestal and say, that person, if I follow them, I'm going to be okay. In the early church, they actually did literally put people up on pedestals. Some people would go out, usually in the wilderness, and they'd build columns for themselves. They'd build pillars that would go up, who knows how high, 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, and then they would build a platform on the top. And a holy man, and it was pretty much always guys, a holy man would somehow get up on top and he'd live on that pedestal. And people would send food up in buckets, and every now and then he would stand up and he would pray for the people who gathered or he'd preach to them. And if you really wanted to be sure that you were close to God, if you really wanted to be sure, well, then you would go and you would be one of those people who gathered around that pillar and who looked up to this guy, and and then you could know. Then you could know that you really belonged to God. At the time of the Reformation, between us and the early church, the church itself was teaching that what you really needed was to find someone who could be on your side. Jesus was way, way up there, and he didn't have time for the likes of you. So what you had to do was you had to go to a priest, or you had to go to one of the old-time saints, and you had to, you had to work out a deal with them. And then they would go up, and they'd sort of meet Christ partway up, and they would, they would work out a deal for you. So what you needed to do was to find, to find a priest. And a lot of those things these days sound pretty silly to us, right? Why in the world would you go out to the desert to watch some guy stand up on a pole and yell at you? And why would you go to a priest to talk to you? That doesn't make any sense to us. But we still do the same thing, really. We live in the age of the celebrity blogger, of the celebrity pastor, of the great inspirational writer. And all too often, we put those people up on a pedestal. All too often, instead of looking to Christ, we look to, and insert the name of your favorite celebrity Christian leader here, we look to them. We look to them to assure us. We look to them to lead us. We look to them to really, really give us hope. And in some ways, that's, that's good. We're, we're really blessed to live in an age when we can access all kinds of great leaders, where we can follow wonderful teachers, where where we have this access sitting in our living room to more than other people would have dreamed of for most of history. It's a real blessing, but it can become a real temptation and a real problem, too, because because we're always tempted to put these people up on pedestals. And you know, there's no, hate to break it to you, but there's no pastor There's no author, there's no blogger, there's no inspirational speaker who can save you. Church leaders, celebrities, we can do all kinds of things. We can encourage, we can empathize, we can 
teach, we can lead, we can do all kinds of good things. But all of us fail. None of us can save. Even the best of our leaders aren't perfect. They don't last forever. They're just human beings. And so on some level, whatever human leader you follow, whoever you put your trust in, they will fail you. Now, I don't think we do this too often that we put someone up on the pedestal and we trust more and more in them. But, but I think we do it. And it's a problem. And part of the problem is that once we put someone on a pedestal, there are only two things we can do with them. Either we have to venerate them, we have to worship them, we have to look up to them, and they have to live up to our expectations. Or, once we realize that they aren't perfect, once we realize that they can't really save us, then we have to knock them off their pedestal because they have let us down. And how dare they do that? There is no merely human leader who belongs up on that pedestal. Even the best of us pass away. Even the most perfect pastor, even the best blogger, even the most inspirational speaker you will ever hear, they will pass away. They can help us look to Christ, but, but if we get too focused on them, they're just a distraction. So if you're going to put anybody up on that pedestal in your life, if you're going to put, say of anybody, that is who I really follow, let it be Jesus Christ and nobody else. There is only one perfect leader. Only one. And his name is Jesus Christ. And if you put your trust in him, he will never fail you and he will never let you down. Christ alone is our permanent priest. He alone never fails us. And for our last point for today, Christ alone saves us from our sins. We're thinking about verses 26 to 28 now in Hebrews 7. And these verses tell us that Christ is the only one that we need. Christ is holy. He's blameless. He's pure. He's set apart from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. We've already said that all those other priests, all the priests that this text is looking back to, all those people in the Old Testament and even leading up to Jesus' time, all of them passed away. But what's worse is that all of them were sinful. They all owed God a debt that they had to pay before they could pay anybody else's debt. They needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer sacrifices for anybody else's sins. And if we read through the stories of the priests in the Old Testament, they were just as bad or maybe more bad, maybe even more evil sometimes than the rest of God's people. They committed their own sins, and they needed to take care of that before they could go, and go to God on behalf of anybody else. And what's more, those sacrifices that those priests had to offer day after day, year after year, on after on after on, those animal sacrifices didn't really do anything. They were necessary because God commanded them, but they weren't sufficient to pay for anybody's sin. They could never be enough. Never be enough for the sins of the people. Never be enough for the sins of the priest who offered them. 
Really, in a lot of ways, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a bloody, stinky reminder that these sacrifices were never going to be enough and that everybody was always going to fall short. And those sacrifices just did not end. And we don't have any sense of how exhausting that would be. But imagine if every time you went to the grocery store, you had to buy a roast for Sunday noon and you had to buy a roast for the sacrifice. Two bags of chicken for the freezer, two bags of chicken for the altar. Week after week after week after week. Sacrifices got expensive. They were exhausting. And some people around the world still live with that kind of thing these days. They, they expect to keep having to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice and to never, ever get free of that. And we don't expect that, but we almost have the opposite problem that really, if we're honest, we don't feel the need for sacrifice. There are a lot of faithful, church-going people these days who love Jesus, and this probably includes some of us, and maybe even all of us some of the time. Faithful, church-going people who love Jesus, but we just don't get it. Like, why do we have to talk about sin and sacrifice again? Haven't we gotten over that? We maybe recognize that we make mistakes, that we have faults, but we don't process them as sins that need to be paid for. We don't feel guilty. We don't feel like there's anything between God and us. And so when we talk about guilt and sin, I think often many of us have this kind of subconscious question, well, what's God so angry about? What, what, what did we ever do to him that he's so mad? We preachers these days have the difficult and unenviable task of reminding ourselves and reminding everybody else that we are broken that we are sinful, that we do stand in need. We, and really, this we includes all of us believers, not just preachers, we have the task of paying attention to the reality that we are broken and we are sinful creatures and we need a savior. Now our culture doesn't like to hear that. Our culture covers all that over and lives in denial. But the funny thing is that the more and more we deny that we're sinful, the more and more we deny that anything is wrong with us, the more and more we keep frantically searching for salvation. The more and more that people turn their backs on the reality that we are sinful, the louder they get about fixing other problems, about dealing with other things, about finding other ways to feel okay. And all of that noise and all of that fury, it doesn't actually get to the heart of the problem. It doesn't deal with our sinful, broken hearts. G.K. Chesterton once wrote a short story about a man who was perpetually happy. The happiest of all men, they said. Sir Aaron Armstrong, he was famously happy. He'd been an alcoholic. He'd even been a Calvinist. Chesterton was a Catholic, so every time he got a chance to dig at Protestants, he did so. But this guy, he'd come out of all that, and he moved on to happier pursuits. And so Sir Aaron, he was a famous speaker. He went around preaching the religion of cheerfulness. He would speak at conferences and dinners and tell everyone, just be happy. Just be happy. 
Leave all the sad stuff to the side. Don't worry about it. Don't feel broken. Leave all of that aside and just be happy and cheerful and enjoy life and everything will be wonderful. And he preached this gospel of cheerfulness for years and years. But as the years went on, it became more and more, more and more a facade, more and more fake. Sir Aaron himself couldn't live according to his gospel of cheerfulness. So he would go around and he would tell people, be happy, happy, happy. And then he'd go home and he'd drink and he'd drink and he'd drink. Because being happy all the time was exhausting. Being happy all the time was destructive. Being happy all the time was crushing. Because he wasn't right. And as the years went on, he became more and more aware that he wasn't right. And the religion of cheerfulness wasn't helping him out at all. It didn't give him any real hope. It didn't deliver him from all his inner demons. He was preaching this gospel of be happy. But it didn't actually impact his own heart at all. And it left him in total despair. Now that's in some sense is a parable in that story of Chesterton. But I think you would find it lived out amazingly, disturbingly, and actually maybe not surprisingly often in the lives of people who insist that everything is okay, who insist that we're not broken, who insist that we shouldn't worry about the evil, sinful depths of our heart, that that religion, that false good news isn't actually good news. It's terrible news because it doesn't actually help us deal with the reality of our situation. And our real problem, I don't want to minimize any of the other problems we have in this world, but our real problem is that we've broken our relationship with God. Our real problem is that we have turned our back on the Lord, we have gone off into sin, and we keep on doing it. And even if we want to, we can't get ourselves back to God. We owe a debt we cannot pay. We have done things that cannot be undone. And even the best that we do turns out to be weak and useless in the long run. Now, we, we cover that over remarkably well in this day and age, but I think, I suspect, at all of our worst moments, we have that realization that we are not right. I suspect most of us have had moments in our lives when we looked at ourselves and we realized that we just, man, we just aren't good enough. And the things that we've done are despicable and they aren't right. And we wish we could undo them and we can't. And so we've just got to live with it. Because we can't fix it. And no one else. No one else can fix it either. No friend, no church leader, no priest can undo our sin. Can take away our guilt. There is nothing that can deal with our sin once and for all. We don't like that, but we have to wrestle with it because it's true. At the deepest depths of our being, we are broken people. And there is nothing we can do. Now, when we really, when we really process that bad news, then we're ready for the good news. 
While we can't do anything, Christ has already done everything that we needed. Christ is holy, blameless, pure, and he is the great sacrifice for all of our sins. Christ has paid the price. Christ has taken away our guilt for those things that we can't undo, that we wish we could have back, that we don't feel like could ever be fixed. Christ has taken care of that. Christ is completely innocent. He has no stain or spot of sin on him. And he has given us that purity, that spotlessness, that new life. Christ alone gives us true peace. Christ alone intercedes for us forever. Christ alone saves us. There is nothing else. There is no one else. There is no one else who can stand between God and us like Christ does. There is no one else who can take on the weight and the burden of our brokenness and sin like Christ does. Look to Christ and you will find everything that you need. Look anywhere else to anyone else and you will not find real hope, real peace, real salvation. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, and our song.